the business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets, iconoclasts, much more. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I just think that so much of this conversation gets hashed out around subs and cancellations and acquisitions. Like, who's got good stuff? And I think if you, particularly in streaming and particularly in journalism, it would be interesting to track who you rate as good and then look over at who's successful. And my guess is there is a fair amount of correlation. So much pain in media to start 2024. What with Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount, two Hollywood empires, storied, venerable, in freefall. Big layoffs at the Washington Post and LA Times. Vice on its deathbed, and The Messenger already dead. Josh Terengel, the veteran media executive and editor who has traversed many of these lands, is precisely the person I want to talk to right now. So stick around. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from Manhattan, my former boss, Josh Tiringell. He's a man of many media LinkedIn bullets. He was the first editor of Bloomberg Business Week, where I had worked in the late aughts and early teens. He was an executive at Vice Media, where he produced the TV show, I believe, on, on HBO and the cable networks. Back in the day at Time Magazine, he was one of the executives at Time Inc. and uh, had all these celebrity interviews at Time. I think, you know, Bono... You name it, White House people, foreign affairs people, uh, was intimately involved with Times People of the Year, Person of the Year issue. Uh, Josh is in a past life, I believe, was at MTV Networks. That's why he's the perfect person to bring in in this kind of season of uh, media calamity with, I think, Warner Brothers, Discovery Stock at an all-time hope, Paramount Discovery, parent of CBS. Uh, we've seen bloodshed with The Messenger at The Washington Post, where Josh has a column, The LA Times. Sir, how are you? I'm well. I have, I'm just opening your personnel file, just in case we want to reference it. Please uh, do. I have it. Uh, yes. No, I didn't. I didn't deserve you back in the day. You don't know. You know what was it? Uh, Cinderella was it? Don't know what you got till it's gone. But I digress, sir. Here's the thing. Like you know, my metaphorical mind with these apps right now, because it's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know that Netflix ate all of Hollywood. It's unbelievable to think going back. I think in 2011 at Business Week, you took a submission from the late. Roger Ebert, film critic, who encouraged Netflix to self-disrupt. I mean, if we remember our first experiences with Netflix, you get DVDs in the mail. It was by no means preordained that they would go and create this explosion, the supernova of original content, and upend Hollywood. You know, go to Hollywood, effectively the incumbent players, into a an expensive chase to kind of build their own apps, as you saw with Disney Plus, HBO Max, you know, Paramount Plus, Peacock, all these other things that are also rands that are really struggling to make money. I remember you took that column from Roger Ebert saying, "Yes, Netflix, do it. You're going to harvest 
the gains of disruption well before House of Cards, well before The Irishman. Take me back to that period because cable was still a cash cow. Cash cow. It was no, by no means, you know, shedding money. Uh, you didn't see the cord cutters left and right. It was a very different time at kind of the turn of the decade. Yeah, I mean, let me just correct the record. Robert e- Roger Ebert wasn't like submitting work to Business Week. Like, geez, I hope they'll publish it. We. Uh, he was better than us, to say the least, at that point. We reached out to him, and I, I recall reaching out to him because basically, you you know, you couldn't see exactly what was going to happen. But Netflix's arrival, particularly around Quickster, which is a, a lost story that we can get to, mm. um, you could see the ripples coming, right? And standing on the edge, you could see that the pond was beginning to ripple. You just didn't know how big the ripples were going to be. So let me remind people of, a, of an ill-fated but very productive moment called Quickster. So Netflix, remember, was delivering DVDs via the mail at the moment that bandwidth was also beginning to creep up and people were beginning to get these high-speed connections. And it realized that it had two very different kinds of customers. One, who wanted DVDs delivered through the mail, which required the acquisition of hardware, the storage of hardware, and the mail. And the other, which was a digital business, right? Where you could get all this really like real-time data and they saw the fork in the road first. So they did this sort of haphazard rollout. They're going to split the business. There was going to be Netflix, which would be the Netflix we kind of know today. And there would be Quickster, which is where you, you know, go get your DVDs. And the, the customers rebelled. They just said, no, this is outrageous. We could never do this. This is a disaster. But what they did was inoculate themselves, introduce the idea, and they were right. So that was the kind of environment where we reached out, which is like, oh boy, things are about to start happening here, right? Um, so this is, you know, it, it feels like it's all happening at once, but you could watch and, and understand what was coming the moment Netflix derived. In the same way that in 1999, you could order a book from Amazon and any reasonable person would be like, huh, they're delivering a book, but like, what's the difference between a book and literally anything else? Not that much. So, uh, yes, I mean, that was the environment in which we asked Roger Ebert. He wrote a brilliant piece about it. Um, we got lucky, you know, to be able to, to put a marker down that early. But but the, the lesson is there, is that they Netflix certainly, through good management, knew what was coming. And they, I still believe there was a, there was some intentionality behind that idea. Even if it didn't come off exactly the way they wanted and it was a PR nightmare at the time, I think that they did some self-inoculation there. And self-disruption. I mean, it's a, it's a bit cliche to read that it wasn't Sony who created uh, the iPod or the Apple Store, or the iTunes, or this idea that you can go in and buy an MP3 at 99 cents or a movie for $6. Uh, it was by no means preordained that that was left to, to Steve Jobs to come in and self-disrupt or Tesla. I mean, you look at the other automakers right now and how much money they're hemorrhaging on EVs to try to catch up with an EV native in Elon Musk, who doesn't have the legacy dealerships and the like. And I'm wondering to what extent that's analogous to Hollywood's travails over the past several years. Of course, Netflix, I, I won't market to that column, but it goes on to have the really spectacular decade. I think it was the second best performer in the S&P 500, smoked everybody. And it culminates in the pandemic, culminates with the pandemic in 2020, which was just this um, amazing moment of euphoria. The stock market moves up. Everybody is romancing that they're just going to be 
all this money, grow first, harvest profits later. And so Disney Plus, what, comes out with that teaser $6 rate. Like as a parent, you can't say no to that. You're like, yes, binge all of it. All of them are suddenly throttling box office release things. And uh, it it kicked self-disruption into hyperspeed, but now they're kind of paying for that. Discuss it. Well, so look, the net, the Netflix thing is interesting because any new entrant to a market has a huge challenge, right? You've got established players, they have muscles. The odds of becoming new and making it happen are much longer. However, that turns once you start to achieve some success because you don't have a legacy business that you're all precious about and you don't have shareholders who are viewing you as somebody spinning off profits and dividends. So for Netflix, like, yeah, the odds were always longer to be successful until they started to get shorter. And once they start getting shorter, it gets a lot easier. For all the established players, let's use a film reference, right? So the, the very first scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> Indiana Jones is in a dark tunnel. He has to replace a golden idol with a sandbag, and he's got to get out with the golden idol. And it turns out, as he's running away, the giant ball chases after him and it could destroy him. That is what the streamers are doing. They're trying to replace this old golden business and get out with the profits before the weight of that business collapses upon them. Um, some are going to make it, but not all of them. And we're, we're beginning to see the players emerge. Talk about your old stomping grounds. It's now Warner Brothers Discovery. At the turn of the century, I think you joined Time Inc. When was it? 2099? Yeah, 99. What is it about this thing that destroys men and kingdoms? Like that, then they were romancing AOL Time Warner, which was breathless. You remember Steve Case and uh, uh, Jerry Levin on stage? It just sounded, you know, it's like I, I'm thinking of the song. Uh, was it a Jermaine Jackson song? It's like, how can something so right go so wrong? Like, uh, you know, that reference <laughs> well, is like, do what you do when you did what you did. To me. This is yeah, yeah, this is what I miss working with you because you you get these references, but it's indulgent. No, that's a deep cut of a deep cut. Yeah, yeah tur- I mean, turns out to be the worst. Back then, it was the worst merger in history, but then it accrues value for the rest of the decade. Even as is a lost decade for the stock, they shed Time Inc. where you were at Time Magazine, but HBO is a golden child, and they grow that business through The Sopranos, through what Game of Thrones. So much so that AT&T comes in and overpays for it. AT&T spits it out after a couple of years. And right now, this is kind of the, the leverage buyout remnants of this. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. Like it, you see under David Zasloff, if they shed debt, if they have free cash flow, the street doesn't care. There's still $40 billion of debt. Where are your eyeballs? I'm not giving you points for cutting productions. But then if you spend Bet the Ranch again on the streamer and you have billions of dollars of losses every year on Max, it's not even HBO Max anymore, you're damned in that direction. You know, Speak to that. So look, I, th- I think media has a power that other businesses don't, which is that it can get people to be a little irrational, right? Mm. And the reason is that, let's face it, it's kind of cool, right? You make a thing and people talk about the thing. And if you're AOL... You know, nobody's like, yeah, man, I just love AOL. Nope. It's a service. If you're AT&T, people aren't talking about your great carriage, your spectrum rights. And so there is an element of irrational exuberance around media. Always has been. And so long as media plays it right, there always will be. But to your point, there are one or two people who did play this right. And one of them was Jeff Bukas. Mm. 
right? This was the former HBO chief who was the CEO of Time Warner, who sold it, who sold it for a very overvalued clip. So so Bukas Bukas and Rupert Murdoch are the two people who actually saw what was coming and and decided to, to grab their chips and get away from the table. And they deserve a lot of credit in terms of shareholder value, in terms of being good CEOs, in terms of foresight, because in this cycle of irrational exuberance around media, in this brass ring kind of, you know, hypnotizing people into what the ultimate streaming war could be, what they saw was this is going to get super expensive. We're decently positioned, but not perfectly positioned. Everybody else is getting irrational. Boy, it's a wonderful time for us to get out of the market. And so selling at the top or near the top, um, you know, there's some element of accident to that. But, yeah, I don't but, think a lot of our listeners realize Rupert sold the the Fox Entertainment assets, not Fox Sports, not Fox News, obviously not the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, but the entertainment assets, which include uh, 21st Century Fox Studio, uh, The Simpsons and others, to Disney, I think for something like $70 billion. And yeah. they, they really bought that at the top. You think it would have been amazing fodder for Disney Plus, whether Nat Geo or Hulu or everything. But right now, their problem is debt and leverage and uh, getting people to pay a fat price uh, for the streaming app and having to uh, self-disrupt and deal with ABC's decline and everything. Rupert really sold at that top. And similarly, Jeff Buke is, what was it, at Sun Valley? He had this agreement or something to sell to AT&T. As you know, you know, you work with Richard Plepler of, of HBO. That was a cultural disagreement at the very outset. These guys in Texas these bean counters saying, we just need more out of you. You need to do more of what you're doing. It's, it's not like anything was wrong with HBO. It's just when you sell it at that high a price, you have to run a special hamster wheel to justify making it work out. Yeah. And, and to, so just to revert for a moment, um, you know, I have a little experience with, with Bucus and a little experience with Murdoch. And um, they are, you know, because Bucus came out of HBO and yeah. was credited yeah. with, with nurturing some of the greatest content of the 21st century. And because Murdoch is so heavily involved with his news properties, people think of them as just like, you know, deep in the weeds, would never mm-hmm. sell. But they're business people. They, they got a call correctly. And they deserve some credit for that from a financial perspective. What new ownership always overlooks is, again, this is an irrational business. And the incentives are not what you think the incentives are. So, you know, in a private equity business, in a big conglomerate, everybody's pointed toward the quarterlies. They've got profits to make. Sometimes in content, you take the scenic route to get to profits because that's what your makers do, right? And so there is no formula for the creation of a Sopranos or a Game of Thrones. The best thing you can do, and I learned this from Richard Plepler, is there is a form of rationality that sort of makes it work, which is what do I know when I'm going to make something? I know the talent, I know the subject, and I know the budget. Those are the three things I know. How comfortable am I with those three things? Because I'm not going to be the one on a set or in an edit room at 2 a.m. making a critical choice. So I need to know those three things. And if I'm comfortable, you make the bet and you don't look back. Because that's what, that is how you nurture talent. And it's really the best way to supervise it, right? Now, not every part of a content business works that way, right? You can format shows. You can, you can nail them down on a shiny floor. You can make and spin out content with a certain kind of margin all the time. There's room for both approaches, but I don't think most of the acquirers understand that. I think what they see is people are talking about this thing. Everybody loves it. We need something to fill the pipe. Let's go get it. So that's the challenge is that it comes down to this massive culture clash pretty much every time. You know, the Disney Fox acquisition is a little bit different, but 
But even there, each show I've ever worked on is basically like building a civilization from scratch. Now multiply that times hundreds, if not thousands of shows and series and hours. And so it's, it's a very complicated art, very hard to supervise. And if you're not comfortable with that level of risk in your business, you're in the wrong business. Which Warren Buffett had accumulated at Berkshire Hathaway, I think, in the final quarter of last year and, and recently dumped unceremoniously. This has been a death spiral for other cultural reasons. Uh, the late Sumner Redstone, well into his 90s, well after you know his lucidity had passed, was holding on to this company. And there were catch, you know, both corporate and, and uh, paramour hangers-on who were trying to secrete value from it. And all that time... There was no uh, self-disruption going on. I, I thought about you when recently, you know, if I flip through the channels on linear TV, all that's left on MTV, your old stomping grounds, is ridiculousness. I mean, I don't under, I don't even know who MTV's audience is right now. Nickelodeon? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hesitate to say it's probably not you. But it's not, <laughs> right? but I mean, shouldn't it be my kids? I mean, yes, maybe I'm still fixated on well, the 80s and Adam Curry and, you know, the, the VJ in front of the aquarium you know, introducing a rock block or 120 minutes coming in. That era is long gone. It's since moved to YouTube and Vimeo and Vivo, but they had spent, uh, uh, you know, a good decade pussyfooting around and there was no digital product and now they're paying for that. And let's not forget, Paramount has CBS. This is this is the Tiffany network, yeah. right? So look, Robin, I think what you're, what you're talking about, which is a through line for all this stuff, is taste, mm. right? And that taste is very hard to construct and work backward from. Taste evolves, it's in the zeitgeist, it is constantly changing. And the people who make it are the least responsive to corporate edicts, right? And yet it is the most powerful thing that you can sell if you have one of these networks. And sometimes it's taste in the making of things and sometimes it's the taste in acquiring and curating. Look at a business like A24, what is that business? Taste, that's all it is. It's what they select, what they acquire, the designs around their marketing and how they put it out there, right? And so when a place like Paramount gets into a spiral, which I think we can say it probably sure. is in a spiral, you go back to the moment at which you say, well, where did they lose it, right? And a lot of times where they lost it, and, and you know, this may sound sort of self-justifying given my job, but a lot of times where they lose it is they lose faith in their own ability to make taste right? And to have taste. And they try to format it. And they try to create this formula by which if you do this, 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 and this, we will get there, right? Really hard to sustain that. It'll work for a little bit. You can absolutely format, you know, look, network television, right? The voice is doing its thing. That is a format. Every episode of that show and every season of that show can be written on a piece of paper. And you can basically execute that piece of paper. But at some point, by doing that four nights a week, You've told other people in your audience, well, we're not interested in you. And at some point, the users or viewers of that show are like, I can't take another second. Like, I, you have squeezed my soul. So that's the tough part for these big companies is how do you define and have faith in taste? Real market pressure to turn around a company, to have a quarter that makes sense. And I think some of the conflict, you know, dating back to AT&T and HBO was very much about Quality versus volume. In AT&T's mind, you know, look, AT&T is a company where taste is just not relevant. Nobody's like, man, I love my carrier. I love that logo. Nope. 
They don't care. Yeah, but it's you know, if you coveted your HBO uh, unlimited binge, uh, I thought that was the play that you give this people that it makes that so much stickier than a Verizon or a T-Mobile. But you still have to understand each other. You just do. And so for AT&T, the thought was, this is a great asset. And now we're going to get them to make more of the greatness. That's what they have to do. And they can probably make it a little cheaper because we're AT&T. Yeah. And for HBO, you know, the philosophy always was more is not better. Better is better. We'd rather have fewer things that everybody talks about and people have strong responses to, right? It doesn't always have to be positive. They want them to have strong responses to to keep that brand going. Those are diametrically opposed views. You are never going to get there if you have disagreements about quality versus volume. And you see that, by the way. In a different way and in a less careful way in the collision between journalism and digital and social properties, right? What is the incentive for a Google or a, you know, meta? Volume. They're volume businesses. The more stuff they have, the more ads they can serve. What is the long-term incentive for journalism? Quality. doesn't matter how much you make if some of it's wrong. You have to put your best foot forward at all times. It has to be accurate. When you get those kinds of collisions, you're going to have chaos. And that's the marketplace right now. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Josh Tierngel. He is joining us from New York. We're talking about all things disrupted in this season of, of sadness in media. It seems like you're seeing layoffs everywhere. You're seeing stocks at all-time lows, whether we're talking about the streamers, uh, newspapers, jettisoning chunks of staff, digital media natives. I mean, fear and loathing at CNN. Josh uh, runs a production company. He has advised several executives in the business. I'm sure he's called left and right to take some of these vacancies. I, I guess he's in quasi-stealth mode right now. He does write a column for the Washington Post. Focus on CNN. You and I used to talk about this every now and then. It's a particular uh, dilemma right now in that they had that horrific year last year with the demonstration of Chris Licht. That just didn't go right under this, this Warner Brothers discovery empire. But you have the former CEO of the New York Times come in and say, we really need to rationalize this. You still have a very profitable linear TV business. You're getting affiliate fees. You're getting advertising. It's table stakes. You can't have you can't sell cable TV without CNN, or you see it in the airports or see it at the bar or whatever it is, but it's nowhere digitally. And this is the amazing thing to me is that for years, CNN.com was just this disproportionate digital presence, whether on mobile or uh, uh, desktops, but they never really paid attention to that, both, I think, in your time at Time Warner and uh, currently right now, it's an afterthought. And I mean, what's the upside for them to try to make it a tile on the the Max app? I mean, what do you do right now with this global uh, bureau, um, uh, times where people overwhelmingly want a source like CNN at a time of crisis, but no real way to harvest profitability out of it? Yeah, I mean, I, look, let me start by saying that thing is a, a miracle when there's breaking news. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. When there's breaking news... For all of people's, oh, I'm, I don't watch CNN. Man, the, it's like reptile memory. You go and see what they've got because the organization cranks itself up in a way that is meticulous and accurate. And they've got something like 917 affiliates around the world. It's amazing. Yeah, but it's not a digital um, impulse. I mean, it is not no, for, for you no, and I to go and watch it live on, a, on an app or something if we already have been no, cord cutters. I think, the, I think the question becomes, so... If you're going to adapt that to digital, how much of what really exists now is adaptable? How much is about the product? You know, the, the, the digital product isn't great. 
a lot of people's digital product isn't great, but you, you don't have an excuse anymore. It's 2024. Like digital product is something you can get right. So it's about the experience. It's about the ease of use. There's a lot of material on their website, way too much for my tastes, and it needs to be ordered. Um, but I do think you have to start with this sort of content question about what do you do that's indispensable and how do you accelerate that, right? And like the, let, let's talk just briefly about the New York Times, which has done this better than sure. anybody, right? The Times is a news organization, but it's no longer just a news organization. It, it understood that news is a line of business. In they're they're now a conglomerate, right? They've got games. They've got no. It's the an athletic, indispensable app. It's a lifestyle thing. If you're thinking about Wordle, if you're lifestyle. thinking about their podcasts, which have disrupted NPR, yeah, and and that's that's what they saw ultimately. And I, I'm sure they would never say it is that they are a cultural brand as much as a news brand. And so if you don't subscribe to the New York Times, you don't have that app. That now says something about you. And so CNN has to get to that spot, which is. What does it mean if you don't have it? And in order to do that, you got to do a lot of heavy lifting on your own. You got to build a lot of digital product. You, you also need R&D, right? And R&D is something that people overlook when it comes to content, but you got to try stuff. And so when I look at television, particularly news television, I see formats that have been the same now for 15, 20 years. Try new stuff, guys. Where's your internal skunk But Josh, it is an innovator's dilemma, right? Didn't they blow, what was it, $200 million on CNN Plus, which was, you know, dead before it even arrived? Yeah, but I'm not even talking about big spend. I'm actually talking about, you know, something I did at Vice was create a team of three people. And those three people's job was to try new segment ideas that could be a minute long, try new show ideas that could be an hour long. But one of them was an editor, one of them was a designer, and one of them was a producer, and their job was, is this a thing, basically? I would say, hey, is this person capable of carrying a show? And a week later, I'd have my answer because they'd go make it for nothing. So I don't think that that exists within the networks in the right way. But to drive what? And to that, drive more um, linear TV eyeballs in the core demo? I mean, it's not, it's, again, there. moving to the app, like where it's a, geez, I need to but, get this. Yeah, but Robin, it does, I, I think you're getting ahead of it. it. It all starts with the idea right? Your job, if you're a content maker, your job is to make hits. Okay. And those hits can be digital. They can be linear, but first and foremost, keep making hits. And so in order to keep making hits, you have to try new stuff. And sometimes a hit is as small as a really good TikTok post. And you say, oh, people responded to that. Well, why? What do we do with it next? And so that culture of tinkering, of developing your own talent, Seeing who can scale doesn't exist. It just doesn't. But that costs nothing. I, I mean, truly nothing. And so I don't know why that doesn't happen, but you need to position yourself so that at least you can capitalize on that stuff. Because yeah, you're right. There are going to be huge capital expenses. I can't imagine what it's been like to be in CNN the last four years. You know, multiple changes in ownership, multiple changes in direction. We're going digital. No, we're not. We're launching all these shows. No, we're not. But it still starts with like, somebody's got to say, oh, this is good. This is what we're going to try and do. You don't see that experimentation. So here's the deal. You know, you and I used to make fun of the late Larry King, and it would be uh, aspirational for someone as recently, what, as 2006, 2007, 2008. Amaya Rudolph has a new show or a Broadway play coming out. She'd go on Larry King Live. Now Amaya Rudolph goes on what? Hot Ones. Right. And eats chicken yeah. wings and might answer a few questions. It's a very different world 
or a Joe yeah. Rogan, who is an enterprise unto himself, or Smartless. You see a couple of, of celebs with a podcast. If you have a book, you know, Terry Gross can move it with uh, 65-year-olds. And then um, who's it? Jason Bateman, you know, one of the avatars of our childhoods, can move it with a certain other generation. I, I don't know to what end, like if you're CNN and if you're Mark Thompson right now, you're trying to get this skunk works and this experimentation. Like, wh- where is where is the profitability at the end of that? It's really elusive compared with affiliate fees and the fat money that CNN makes right now. I mean, maybe there's a, a mindset that that's all gone. You need to forget about it. No, I don't think it's all gone. And I, I, I think that cord cutting, there's a bottom to cord cutting, that there's just a number at which we'll, we'll decide that's where, that's where people are going to have cable. And as you know, there's only two trends in business, really, bundling and unbundling. And then they just go back and forth, right? <laughs> and so as a maker of things, what we've seen is that there are subscription products that are getting 20 bucks a month out of people. New York Times gets $20, 20 bucks a, month, dollars yeah. a month. That is a lot, right? But it's a really good product. So what could CNN get for a really streamlined, smart news service? Leaning into video, like what could they get? I think that's where you have to start. And, and if you start there and you lock in one, one stream of revenue, you improve your product and can go to advertisers with something different. It's another stream of revenue. But you, you just have to get some stability. And, and to me, I know that this is counterintuitive to the way Wall Street thinks and the way a lot of executives think, but not all. Stability actually starts with content. High quality stuff. If I've got high quality stuff, the rest I can figure out. You can have great great tech product, you can have a decent subscriber base. It will not last and it won't matter if your stuff is bad. And so, you know, I, I just have historically preached to people I work with, control what you can control, right? And even in, in magazines where, you know, we turned around a very bad financial situation to make it a much less bad, if not great financial situation, you know, we would always talk about like, where are the ads? Why is this? It's like, you can't control that, guys. Make it great. That's the thing we own. And we'll worry about what the business economics are going to be. But like, I just think that so much of this conversation gets hashed out around subs and cancellations and acquisitions. Like, who's got good stuff? And I think if you, particularly in streaming and particularly in journalism, it would be interesting to track who you rate as good and then look over at who's successful. And my guess is there is a fair amount of correlation. Full disclosure, please stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, Apple, all the fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe, rate us, and call your girlfriend is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. Our handle on all the socials is FullDRadio. We recently had Steve Inskeep on Full Disclosure Live. I'm talking to a favorite band, The War on Drugs. I'm trying to convince Maya Rudolph to come on. I'm talking to Pete Yorn. We're going to have, gosh, Abigail Spanberger on later in the year. You can follow all of the developments. We are on Facebook. Instagram, LinkedIn. The handle, again, is Full D Radio, and my DMs are always open. If you are just joining us, my esteemed guest is Josh Terengel. He is joining us from New York. He is a man of all media descriptions. He turned around Bloomberg Business Week. He was at MTV News. He was recruited to Vice News. He now has a production company. I mean, he writes a column for the Washington Post. Uh, Sir, you're internationally known and known to rock a microphone. And, you know, this metaphor for me, before I let all of streaming go, do you remember... Um, 
and this, again, this is very Farzadian. There was this move, like when when the whole Arena Rock industrial complex was falling apart in uh, the late '80s. You'd have this move to like super groups. Like, what if we got Yes and Super Tramp in Asia and put them on like a rotating stage? Would you pay fifty dollars a ticket and buy a lot of merch? And the thinking might now be that what if you put a Paramount and a Peacock together and bring all of that amazing content together. I don't know, Yellowstone, Top Gun, the 60 Minutes archives, everything that you've ever had on Paramount, every MTV show, I don't know, Live Aid, uh, Sopranos, Sex in the City, you know, Succession, you name it. Would people pay something like $60 for a super app? Is, is that the game? Nope. I mean, I, I have a dear departed relative and i remember we were shopping and something was 50 percent off or it was two for one or something and she said two of is still shit. right with a yiddish and accent. so the yiddish accent and so this notion that if you just throw enough stuff at it and get the right price point all will be well is not smart so i'll tell you a couple a year and a half ago i was talking to the CEO of a, let's call it charitably, a second-rate streaming company. And we were just talking, and I, I said, look, what's the, what's the dream here? Like, what's the goal? And this person said, maybe we can get to fifth place, and then maybe we combine with somebody in sixth or seventh, maybe we get to fourth. And aside from my own just sort of existential sadness of, you know, I, who wants to compete for fourth, right? That's not, that's not what inspires people. I also just thought, oh boy, that's just not, it's not how it works, right? People with their disposable time want high quality stuff, stuff that surprises them, stuff that, that really is like, they're not, they're not valuing their purchase on an app based on their access to the archive of a show they don't watch anyway. And so I do think that part of, you know, sustainability here is having the courage to look at the data on your users, figure out what they really like make more stuff that's going to surprise them. Don't, they've already figured out they're not, nobody's buying rights for old stuff anymore. Like they're all smart enough to know in their own libraries what's working and what's not. Right. But I just don't think more is the answer. I think better taste, better definition, a little bit more market segmentation, right? We've seen, we've begun to see it. You know, Netflix has positioned itself as the, the whole foods supermarket style. What do you want? We got it. And it's probably pretty good. You know, Max, I think, still has another wave. Were to you go guys of, miffed that of, they dropped the HBO name on that? I mean, why? Why would you? Um, I, you know, I will tell you, people inside HBO were because the quality of the brand was so great. Um, but you know, this is a thing that happens culturally when companies combine, right? Like when AOL bought Time Warner back in the olden days. Um, it was called AOL Time Warner, and immediately our office email became AOL. Email. <laughs> And if you remember what it was like to use AOL as email, I mean, people went nuts, crazy. Yeah. And so the uh, my one of our friends, Norm Perlstein, um, who was then the editor in chief of Time Inc., um, was so pissed that at some point Steve Case, who was the CEO, came bounding in and wanted to talk. And you know the the stupid AOL email bong was going off in the background, and Norm basically said. I will not be speaking to you until you get us off this goddamned email system. And so that's just what happens when cultures combine and people are in the middle of it. So like, sure, would it have been 
easier, better from my perspective to just say, it's called HBO. We don't even need the plus. It's HBO. just HBO. Sure. But that's, that's not what they did. I don't know what they were thinking about it, but like Max is now to some people, it's like, Oh wait, it's half of Cinemax. It's what, what is this? Um, but this stuff happens when companies combine. It's never, it's never easy. Josh, I think maybe the, the, the keystone keeping what's left of uh, linear cable together, the structure together is live sports. I mean, NFL, you saw how much uh, the Super Bowl covered itself in glory with the ratings. Even that Dolphins playoff game on Peacock, while everybody was annoyed that NBC dared to do that and force that behavior, uh, this is where they still have leverage until the rights expire. I'm thinking the NBA and the NFL, especially MLB, not so much. Um, how are they going to be able to afford to renew to keep this. Do you know what I'm saying? When the asymmetry of an Apple or Amazon or YouTube, they have so much more money to blow on these inflated uh, sports rights than the cable networks and the legacy networks do. And it, it's it's a conundrum because you need that to keep what's left of your linear bundle together. Yeah. And look, I, this is one of those areas where partnership actually is a meaningful thing. Um, you know, if the NFL wanted to sell the rights to this this past Super Bowl, I'm sure they could have gotten a zillion dollars, which is not a real number. But as you know, like somebody would take it on for sure, because Peacock showed if you just get it in there, this is such a scarce thing. There's only, you know, 200 something, 270 games a year. Having one of them near the end of the season is an incredible opportunity. That said, for all of the knocks, we take at Roger Goodell and his, you know, 32 crazy bosses. They're pretty smart at long-term thinking, and they understand that there is a balance here. The balance between getting the right amount of money up front from somebody who's willing to pay through the nose and audience and ease of use, because they don't want to suddenly, you know, boxing in our youth became a pay-per-view sport. Didn't bring in a whole lot of new people. It was a way to extract more dollars from the people who were crazy about it, but it shut off the oxygen to new audiences. And the NFL has been around a while. They know that new audiences really matter. Um, they know that keeping advertisers is really smart because you go to the, the model of just having this sort of like paid service and you're cutting off one leg of revenue. And so I think that they are managing that really well. I'm not sure there's ever a future where it's all pay-per-view, where it's all behind a wall. I think that they'll continue to dally with it, but like, I don't think the networks are in trouble there. I really don't. And it's an interesting way to think about what else could be used in that sense. Now, again, scarcity drives price. There are only so many games. I think there are more Major League Baseball games in two weeks than there are in the season of the That's NFL. True. And so it's much harder for that sport. You know, we've talked about in the NBA, everybody everybody says the regular season is too long, but nobody wants to cut it because of gate revenue yeah. and television revenue. But I wonder, would they be better off with 60-something games if those games meant more and the rate would go up? You know, these are, those are answers to these questions. But I think you're going to see the next five, 10 years of media rights. That's what's going to start to play out. What's so different? I mean, we're going to get into this. You're an O's super fan. This was one of your first jobs, I think, an internship you know, and, and the letter is a, is a Baltimore, what, teenager uh, working for the Baltimore Orioles. Um, not an internship. Yeah, I was on the grounds and crew. So they haven't a won a World Series, what was it, in 40 years, 41 years? But they have a brand new owner and someone that I'm sure you know well, uh, you know, private equity supernova who has a show on Bloomberg. Um, if you were advising him, which I'm sure you probably are behind the scenes, he called you. Look, I'm kicking the tires on the O's. Here's what I don't get. 
I'm a Dodgers fan. I don't have an allegiance to linear TV to catch late stadium, you know, games from Chavez Ravine. I could go to MLB.com and watch it. And we've had Felix Gillette on before. When and if they finally put a 360 VR node on this, I would have significant willingness to pay for Dodgers, Lakers, Dolphins, Miami Hurricanes. Is that something that the leagues can do themselves, go straight to the consumer? Or is someone kind of going to solve that for them? A YouTube, a, I don't know, I don't even know who that player is. Would an Apple with the Apple Vision solve it? Or am I thinking way too into the future? No, I, I, look, I think they're all having that, those conversations. The question is, what business do you really want to be in? You can't do everything. Nobody can do everything. So if you're the commissioner of a sport, again, you know, my, one of my late career rabbis was David mm-hmm. Stern. And Stern talked about the fact that like, everybody thought David Stern ran the NBA. And David Stern was a direct report of 30 billion. Basketball reasons. Yes. And so it's very challenging to get everybody on the same page. These are not one person organizations where they can just go in a direction. They all have different priorities. So like, sure, they could come up with something. And MLB, to its credit, created BAM, which uh, was a digital service, early streaming, sold to Disney, did very well for the owners. So could they? Sure, they could. Is that their priority right now? Or would they rather let somebody else handle that? And handle the risk and the logistics and the provisioning of it. Correct. Uh, yeah. But I again, I, I don't know. I'm not the median user. Do I have a willingness to pay for kind of, you know, mid-court VR? Absolutely. Jenny Buss, take my money. Magic Johnson, take my money. Uh, you know, the Dodgers, Dolphins, everybody. And I, again, I wouldn't have an allegiance to the ACC network or to ESPN or multi-homing with YouTube Thursday nights or whatever games, you know, Peacock, these guys are trying to play with me. I'm really curious in how that that uh, negotiation and how that race settles out over the next five years. Yeah, me too. And uh, But look, I, don't, I think five years is too soon. I really do. I think that for now, the money is still very valuable. You're going to see in the next, you know, the NBA is up next for negotiating rights. Pretty sure Amazon will have some role. But Amazon is, a again, it's not a scarce player, right? They have a lot to shop for. And so having some games is great. The experience is only going to get better. I mean, people who've seen the Vision Pro can understand it is like watching a game in IMAX. It's, it's very impressive. How much will people pay, right? And these are balancing acts because I can tell you there are people around the world who would pay, what? $1,000 a year to watch the European the European Premier League in the ultimate IMAX experience at any time? How much would they pay for the Champions League? But who are you excluding that? And how does that exclusion impact your business down the road? So mm-hmm. like these, none of these decisions exist in a vacuum. And I, I think it's easy, particularly in sports, because you know we're trained in sports. There's a smart guy, a dumb guy, a winner and a loser. And actually it is very nuanced to figure this out with sports. But it's not going to happen in five years. I think it'll be closer to 10. Were you impressed during the pandemic how certain people, I mean, Louis C.K., who was canceled, who could go straight to people with a comedy show, really go a la carte for people who wanted to watch it in the comfort of their living room with their own booze and their own bathroom right there. There are other artists who are able to do this, maybe comedy specials. There are, they were dueling DJs during the pandemic. I'm trying to think back to the fog of... I mean, it was it was really discovery of a next level. I mean, this is a long-winded way of me asking you about YouTube, which has become the biggest cable channel on the planet. Uh, it was bought, I think, in 2006 by Google for something like $2.6 billion. Um, it's enormous. And, and, and I don't know how economic it is to the grand scheme of Google search and other designs, you know, this trillion-dollar company. Uh, but where do you see that headed? I mean, they have a great product. 
They just I mean, do. it's where my kids it's, go directly. They don't go. They don't turn on the yeah. TV at night. They go and you know. Yeah, it's incredible. It's an incredible product. It's the infinite video jukebox, and yet the algorithm's pretty mm. smart, and it does manage to serve you up some surprise and introduce you to new things. And if I need to know how to fix my washing machine, I promise you, I can get it done there. So, incredible product. Also positioned for optionality. You know, they now have a pay service that's going along pretty well. And they are, look, the digital media companies with their expertise is, is pain tolerance. They know exactly how much pain they can inflict upon you. And it used to be that they would do that in the service purely of advertisers. And then they realized, oh, what if we use this pain tolerance to convert people to paid subscribers? <clears throat> well, that's an interesting model too, right? So I have plenty of issues with the large social media companies. I don't have, they really know what their business is. They really examine the metrics very carefully. They're not afraid to take risks because they have big war chests. Um, you know, when YouTube started a paid service, everybody thought, well, this is nothing. Who's going to pay for, you know, low quality video? And it turns out, actually, it's pretty good service, pretty good product. So I, it's not going anywhere. The only thing that might cause it to change is if the government at some point says, Oh my God, one company controls such a large you know, piece of the digital advertising market. Could I see a split up AT&T style Has down the road? Has it been done in 40 sure. years? It's amazing to me that they- Yeah, it's been a long yeah. time. And, and certainly from an experience of a user, there's only a handful of places that are controlling the great majority of my, of my ad mm -hmm. serving, right? So that could happen, but- you know, got to give credit where it's due. That is an amazing product. It is. And I think about someone like a Marques Brownlee, who did this as a hobby, reviewed products, and suddenly his his doorman, you know, uh, mailroom was full of swag from Samsung and everybody else. You know, everybody back then was like, is this the next Walt Mossberg? I mean, it's not about being Walt Mossberg. If, if the Journal or uh, the New York Times or, you know, any fat publication economist came to them and said, you can be our resident tech reviewer that's that's small stakes that's penny ante for him because he's such a colossus on youtube direct to the consumer but there's one thing that, about that that circles back to our earlier conversation about streamers and volume and everything else which is um look there's a huge volume of stuff on youtube and i hear lots of pieces you know lots of people complaining oh it's so hard to make money as a creator right turns out that the ratio of stuff to excellent stuff is fairly constant right it doesn't matter how much you put up the ratio is the same. And I think it's been the same for as long as people have been making artistic things, right? It's really hard to make great stuff. And so a Mark Rober, a Marcus Brownlee, turns out those guys are doing great. Well, guess what? It correlates to how good the stuff is. They care about it. They're good curators of their own brands. They make high quality things. And yeah, it does really well for themselves. It's not a meritocratic world. I'm not naive. I know that there are plenty of great things that fail, plenty of dumb things that succeed. But, you know, it doesn't really matter between journalism, maker economy, uh, streaming. Just watch what's good and see if it is also correlating. You know, to paraphrase late, uh, you know, uh, Player Haters Ball was on uh, Charlie Murphy, or was it, was it the, um, actually the Chappelle show? Uh, <laughs> the Messenger. What can you say about The Messenger, the media startup that didn't even last a year that hasn't already been said about Afghanistan, for example? Uh, oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> that, let, me, let me get um, the disclosure out of the way is I was approached to uh, work there and they wanted to adapt uh, a VC interview that I did. I was never paid for it. No one, no one would take my, 
emails or my invoices, and that should have been a leading indicator. But this blows my mind. Here you have Jimmy Finkelstein, media mogul who sold The Hill, I think, for $150 million. And a year ago, he came out offering several hundred thousand dollar pay packages to marquee journalists to get them to this new startup, The Messenger. We're just going to call it The Messenger. It was launched late and it died. It ran out of money less than, what, 11 months later. What was your read on that? I don't even know what kind of you know transitional device to use on that. Um, you know, I will say... Amongst a small group of my friends, when we first heard of what this thing was, it was like listening to someone tell you two plus two is 20. And you're just like, okay, the, the foundational math is off. The person telling us this seems completely ignorant of what the current media environment is. And also, what is, what is the positioning of this? What, like none of it ever It sounded like it me. was built to flip. If you built enough scale, built um, enough names, some other analog player would come and pay a lot for it, a Cox or someone else. Maybe, maybe, I, but it still has to be a thing. And and again, like to, to I don't want to beat this horse, but like, tell me why I need this? Because you're putting together some names, none of which are, are connected. You haven't told me what your theory of why you are different or valuable is. All of your, your economics are based on advertising values that haven't existed in five, ten years. Like, it never made sense. And then it sounds like um, the accumulated weight of nonsense was obvious immediately. Then you start making panicky decisions and dumb decisions and maybe aren't telling everybody the whole truth at all times. Like, I, none of it surprised me. Like, not a, not a bit of it. Here, thought exercise, Josh. I mentioned this to John Kelly, who worked with us, you know, before, and we had him on to talk about Puck. And, you know, Graydon Carter went off and did airmail, and there are a couple of other experiments in this. Suppose I give you venture money and a fat office in Hell's Kitchen. You can go poach whoever you want from the New York Times, from the Wall Street Journal, from whatever's left of Time, Inc., you know, Bill Cohen, anybody you want, and you call it whatever the heck you want, and you're just selling that excellence. Would that work? as a digital native business model. Your cred, the cred of these reporters, I think of a Bill Cohen, I think of a Dylan Byers, I think of some amazing private equity writers that I go directly to on Substack or other areas where like, I, I really like this a la carte existence. Would that work as a business model? Is, is the New York Times, you know, at this point, it's not really selling you on, I mean, maybe Andrew Ross Sorkin, but it's not really selling you on its bylines. It's selling you on the lifestyle package, the fat app. I think what you're asking is, could you do this via smart acquisition, build a brand that way? And that's just not how I prefer to think about it. I, I think if you gave me a ton of money and said, all right, you got, what's my timeline? Let's say 10 years. I mean, years. Semaphore, Semaphore is doing it. Ben Smith got money with Justin Smith. They could have, he could have stayed at Bloomberg and used the mayor's money, but they seem to think that there's a working case that, as you said in this interview, if you backstop enough excellence, the business model will follow. Yeah, look, I think that there's some things that software has gotten right that content hasn't. And one of them is agile development. Okay. And agile development, if you don't know, basically means let's not make the whole thing right away. Start with making a small bit of it. We'll work in a sprint. We'll get user feedback. We'll tweak the thing. And eventually we're going to apply those lessons to the next thing. And so what I would do myself is not start with 200 employees and a huge nut to cover and big offices, I would say, okay, what's our wedge? Where's an opening? Let's prove excellence there first. 
And what is the next logical place to grow? And then do that. And even if they seem weirdly opposed, let's say one of them was finance and one of them was education, what you're beginning to build is trust that you have taste, that you will provide excellence, that there's quality for money. And it doesn't need, you don't need to make the whole thing at once. And I, I see this over and over again, right? Um, the smart players own a small piece of something. They learn from it. Then they grow. And gradually you get to a place where there's a big number. You get everything involved. You get off a la carte pricing. But I, I'm constitutionally, I'm not interested in the, I'll just call it what it is, misery of launching big. I'd much rather prove excellence for my own satisfaction. Like I don't get satisfaction from sheer scale. I mean, you know, in, in your experience, like someone having to build into a $5.7 billion valuation, which is purely on paper and has callback rights from the private equity founders. I'm thinking about Vice, which becomes a, a sort of Damocles after just two years. Yeah. I mean, look, my experience there was, was very unique. Um, I will say I was treated incredibly well. I was there, you know, uh, I arrived probably a couple of weeks before that valuation got floated. And I had a very specific job, which was to make the first new nightly newscast in about 50 years. And so I was insulated. I, I, I didn't have time to go find out what was going on in the rest of the company. And they didn't want to distract me from my job. But yes, it will be a distraction. Whereas if what you say is, okay, great, we're going to close investment for a little bit. We're actually going to focus on shoring up our company and we're going to shore it up through creating demand around our products. News is, you know, this is again, self-interested. You make a news product that people really, really like. What does that give you permission to do, right? What is the next thing that it gives you permission to do? Because if you have that permission, you have already hedged mm. your risk, right? So if instead of trying to build digitally and linearly, and do shows and podcasts all at once, you say, okay, so the audience really likes this. Now, what if it was in a different format? Now, what if it was a different subject? I just think it's a smarter way to go. And it's, a, it's actually a way to bridge this divide we're talking about between the culture of making and the culture of business, because it does make a lot of sense. Don't do it all at once. Um, too much pressure, too hard. And the degree of difficulty to just get it right is already really high. So why would you make it harder for yourself? Josh Terengel, I would have you on for another hour if I could. It's indulgent. I have five minutes left or maybe a little more, you know, an extended podcast time to talk about your column with the Washington Post and AI writ large. One, just as an example to our listeners, I remember you and Richard Turley, your art director at Bloomberg Business Week. The, the thought you'd put in, you know, with folded elbows is to what would be the great cutest cover that would that would get it across to the most people you know for the next week now if you're a, an editor in chief of a magazine to the extent anybody's actually reading print magazines but you still need visuals for the online product do you tap a, something like a mid journey an ai device to to mock up for you i mean imagine the man hours that that saves the artists you know uh, uh, underling editors who have to contact artists and commission things that would get mothballed I mean, my allegiance is always to the best thing. It is, right? And so what I've seen with a lot of AI is, you know, it's a pretty good co-pilot. It is not great to delegate huge tasks to. Just won't get it done right. And you're going to end up spending a fair amount of time doing corrective work. As an example, I, have, I employ storyboard artists all the time. It's better. They're more specific. They surprise me to the upside. The programs do not at this point. 
they probably will at some point, but like when you're working with a storyboard or a human, there's collaboration and, and synergy that you just can't expect. Right. But my allegiance is to the best thing, the best way to make it. And so we're going to come to a point where some of that will, will, will be in play. For Tee sure. up this big honking 5,000-word column you have coming up, if you can. Preview it for uh, us. Man. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that I've been super interested in is, um, you know, we had this incredible example of AI-powered technology and the federal bureaucracy, and it was called Operation Warp Speed. And we don't really remember that. That has been buried by the kind of stupidity of American politics. But in six months, we went from nothing to distributing vaccines to all 50 states at the same time. And so part of what I'm writing about is the sort of story of how that happened, why it was AI that drove a lot of it, and what we could do if we adapted crisis thinking to regular operations in the government and sort of exploring what's limiting us from doing it now, what, would, what work do we have to do to prepare for that, um, what could we be, and how would that change our, our, our political environment? So I, t- I spoke to a ton of People are very generous with their time, really, really smart. Um, and I think we're going to put that out at the right before the State of the Union address, largely because I do think the Biden administration's done okay on AI. They've done a bunch of smart work, but nobody in government has yet painted a really big picture about what AI in government could be. I think it could help America out of its current bind if we were smart about its use. <clears throat> the level of service that government would be able to provide to people would make the Scandinavians envious. And if we want to do it, it's also cheap. When would it hit frankly. when would it hit so, a kind of a mom and pop tipping point? I'm thinking about, you know, at some sometime at, at a Smart Money magazine at the turn of the century in the start Lehigh building, somebody had downloaded Napster and it was a holy crap moment where you know you just stayed there until 9 30 PM getting all of these MP3s. What are my parents? Am I, what is my mom gonna call me about it? <laughs> that's the thing. Did your parents get vaccinated? They did. Yeah, well, the reason they got vaccinated in the time that they got vaccinated is because of an artificial intelligence tool that allowed General Perna to make it happen. And not just make the manufacturing happen, make the distribution happen. Uh, you know, so we've done it. That's the crazy part is that it's not like we need a proof of concept moment. We had it under the tightest of timelines and the highest of stakes. And then we just kind of conveniently have forgotten We've already demonstrated proof of concept. Where is it so, going to scale? Like in the utility system, in the grid, other areas that could really benefit from? Was it mass pretty transit? Much everywhere. Yeah. Look, I mean, the new. I live in New York City, right? Um, the traffic lights currently are insane, and so we have everybody individually in their cars using AI to navigate a system that is not run by AI. You know what we could do have the system be run by AI and everybody else could just listen to their podcasts. So those are, those are the kinds of things where you're like, oh, right, we've got all these weird workarounds that don't make any sense if we were just to look foundationally. Um, another example, during tax time in 2023, what do you think the percentage of calls to the IRS that were answered was? Five. 29. It was oh. 29%. <laughs> Number of personal experience. Yeah. 29% of calls to an agency that in 2024 does not tell you what you owe, but asks you to guess with criminal penalties, right? Um, almost everything that you do with an LLM. So an LLM manages conversation over structured data. The IRS is a series of policies that are just structured data. 
why on earth wouldn't we immediately pivot to a model where most questions, 95% could be answered in an LLM experience, and the 5% that aren't can be managed immediately by people in escalation. We're, we're just not thinking about the government in the way that we would. How are you going to get we, something so stodgy and stuck in its ways as the IRS to embrace this wholeheartedly? It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I feed my Fidelity 1099 or whatever all these things is into this. It should be able, especially on patterns of my last five returns, intuit what my rough liability is going to be this time around. But it seems like a well, third party will I mean, come you, up with that. Listen, if you really wanted to do it, you'd just say, like many other countries do, oh, we're going to integrate with payroll systems. Mm. That's not hard. It makes too much sense. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. And the, and the answer, with some sympathy, is not to the, you know, are there bad bureaucrats? Are there bad civil servants? Sure. There are many more good ones. The problem is we've got this, the equivalent of tech debt that's built up with our rules and regulations, and the system is absurd. And so you're asking people to enforce absurdities. And that's why it's a, you need a clarion call. You actually need leadership from someone to be able to say, there's a different way to live. We need to figure out how to do it. We have this kind of once in a, let's call it half century opportunity to use technology that can make up a lot of ground for us very quickly and restore the legitimacy of government because that's the crisis we're actually in, which is that, you know, there's a Pew poll from last year I referenced in the piece and most people no longer believe the government can help them with big things in their lives. You can't survive as a nation with that level of crisis of legitimacy. So it's a big piece. I haven't uh, finished it because I decided to talk to you for you know a little while, but I'm going to go back and finish it and hopefully it'll be out next week. Close us out. Put a ribbon on this. Anything you'd like to discuss? The only thing I, I, I want to harken back to is just that um, you know media is this little sewing circle and it, it it has this outsized importance because it is the way in which we, many of us still interact with the world and get entertained and, and have our emotions played with. And in the end, it is, it really can be such a simple business. And, and sort of my occasional frustration is when people overcomplicate it. And so I, I think it starts with vision, an idea, something new and something interesting. Manage it and make it, like make it as pure as you can. And Time and again, that is the best way to hedge against all the crappy stuff in the market. If you just focus on quality and that's, you know, I've, I've learned, I've been turned around all sorts of ways. I've worked in a lot of big companies. I've worked in some small companies. I've worked on some really big projects and some smaller ones. It's the through line. It is. And it just takes discipline. It's really tough, but it's sustainable. It turns out. And so I hope for viewers, for listeners, and for people making stuff, remember, like, eh, just focus on the thing. I hope you get a chance to focus on your O's, Josh. Uh, David Rubenstein well, owns them. I mean, he's a, he's a patriot. He helped rehabilitate the you know, Washington Monument after that earthquake in 2011. He's hopefully going to rehabilitate the O's. They've come close. They've had some great comeback seasons. I could totally imagine him tapping you for some czarist type title. You have AI chops now. You have media chops. You're a true believer in the O's. You have Baltimore cred. Any comment? Uh, listen, I was happy as a groundskeeper in 1990, just raking the infield, cleaning up the bullpens. If the gig is available, 
I'm, I'm more than happy to resume my duties. Catch him on the Acela. Josh Tierengel, I really appreciate this. You're awesome to do this after so long. Again, for everybody, Josh Tierengel, veteran media executive. Sir, I cannot wait to see what you uh, what you do next bigly when that big press release comes out. Thanks, Robin. Appreciate it. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan, Case Graham, Kim Zaninovich, and the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business. If you are listening to us on the radio, note that while we often cut for broadcast length, well, the good news is that the entirety of every interview is on podcast. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com and follow along on all the socials at handle fulldradio. A shout out to our listeners on Radio IQ, on WPVM down in Asheville, out in California on KPPQ. Message me to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And catch me every week on NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.